It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we're talking with Melissa Francis. Listeners will come to know there's nothing this woman can't do. She began her career as a child actor, appearing in dozens of TV commercials, then landed a starring role in Little House on the Prairie. Later, she took a break from acting to get her undergrad degree at Harvard, and from there she's been a business news reporter and anchor at CNBC and Fox Business Network, and a general news anchor at Fox News. She's now developing and writing new shows for TV, both scripted and unscripted. And she's the author of two books, including her memoir, Diary of a Stage Mother's Daughter. Melissa, it's so great to see you. Thanks for coming in. I know this is so fun. (laughs) Now, you know me and I know you. So let's dispense with everything else for a minute and get right to the liquor. We have these gorgeous bottles right in front of us. So I love the idea that you start every show with a drink. First of all, uh, you know, people should know that Doug is a connoisseur when it comes to drinks. And (laughs) I have a very unrefined palate. So, for example, I remember when we were in the Bahamas and I made a picture of drinks and you like recoiled in horror because it was this syrupy, sweet, horrible. And you were like, your palate was like so offended. Um, but I'm like the girl that walked around the party with the with the Bartles and James coolers. Mm-hmm. I have very cheap taste in alcohol. My wine list is like very, very cheap. So we're at opposite ends. But the story with this drink. So this is a French tart that you're going to make. The French and, tart. I'm going to get yes. going on this way. And I'm, I'm interested to hear this because, you know, I've had many dinners with you and your your husband, Ray, and you're. I've generally known you to be a, a white wine yes. drinker, so you, you need to explain yourself I pretty here. much never cocktail. So the way that this happened was we were in Paris for um, Valentine's Day, and we were at this very cool, very chic club that you know starts at midnight and goes all night. Ray and I arrived, and you know as well, we were like the oldest, fattest, ugliest couple in this hardly, place. Hardly, And we're, we're sitting there, and, and we have this table, and it's really fabulous. And you know, Ray, I don't know, he went off to get drinks or something, and we're sitting there, and this, this group next to us of like supermodels said they were going outside to smoke, obviously. And would I would I watch their drinks when they came and, you know, make sure nobody took them. And so they sure, said, OK, watch now I should say at this point we'd been out for a while. So I was a kind of three sheets to the wind. Um, and so their drinks came and I was like, oh, what is that? And they put it down on the table and I picked it up 
and just drank their drink. <laughs> I don't know what inspired me. It just looked so good. And then even worse than that, Ray walks back to the table at the exact same time that the crew of supermodels walks back in and catches me like red-handed, just really enjoying their drink. And it was the most embarrassing moment. It was one of those things you would only do at like 2 o'clock in the morning in Paris. Um, but I had to say, uh, embarrassed, um, wow, that was fantastic. What was that? We obviously need three more rounds of those to make good on it. But it was something called, very appropriately, a French tart, which I kind of was at that moment, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it's a drink that you would appreciate because it is sweet enough for me, but it's not, you know, sickening sweet. And I had to look for a while to see what was in it. I was listening to your podcast and loving the drink part, but thinking that if you ever did invite me on, what would I make? Because I don't really drink cocktails. We would be like opening up a, well, the screw top of a cheap bottle of wine or a of a, wa- of a wine cooler of some type. But oh, It's um, got a nice color. Instead, thank goodness, I remembered this rather embarrassing story and thought I would make that my cocktail. So I love your glasses. So I, you know, I actually, that's a funny story on that. We had a last minute sprint to get glasses because uh, this is served in an <laughs> up martini glass and it's vodka. So the listeners know vodka, elderflower, rosemary. So I'm just putting in some rosemary, rosemary sprigs here. So these are like Times Square. I love New York glasses. Oh, that is, is that literally out of a Times Square. Like, I, I promise it. we did you know, rinse it. it off and took off the price well, tag. Either way, I mean, the alcohol everything. will kill it. It doesn't. Germs are fine. Cheers. Cheers. Great to see you. Awesome. Oh, yes. Just like Paris. Well, I have to admit, I don't really remember what it tasted like because <laughs> it was one of those nights. But that is fantastic. That and is you are good. You are always an excellent cocktail maker. Oh, thank you. I might I might have two or three of these during, yeah, that's the, good during stuff. the conversation. So listeners should also know a little secret of the show. I have long known Melissa to be very funny and clever. And so when I was trying to figure out the name for this show, oh. my wife and I were like, well, let's text Melissa. I bet she'll have some great <laughs> ideas. So we did. And sure enough, dedicated comes from you. I know. I think I was... I, we were somewhere strange. We were like, we, I think we were in Paris or in the Bahamas or something. I got your text and I instantly was like, just rattled off some ideas. And I think I woke up in the morning with a couple more, but it was either the first or the second. But I love it because Megan called me the idea factory. Yeah, and that exactly. is that is my favorite compliment of all time. Well, within five seconds, you fired back like five great ideas. I don't remember exactly which wave it came in, but you had a few waves of great ideas. Mike, Mike's taking some photos. Let's get a good one okay. of these glasses with the Cheers. drink. Cheers again to the naming of the show. There we go. Dedicated. That is good. Well, it's appropriate because you have always been a very dedicated writer. And I do think in all seriousness, one of the we're dedicated drinkers, the four of us when we go out. But um, we all sort of have a passion for for what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it works on so many levels. Yes. The name. <laughs> That's what makes it good. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to start at the beginning and you've written a memoir. But for yeah. those who haven't read it or don't know some of the stories, I wanted to go back to the early days of Melissa Francis. I think I read. You were in more than 100 commercials, yeah. including the first one when you were about six months old. Yeah, that's I mean, I don't remember again, not because I was drunk that time, but because <laughs> I was six months old. So um, I'm told it was a Johnson and Johnson baby shampoo commercial. And mm. my older sister had been cast in it. And, you know, supposedly the director said, why don't you you know, my mom was there with me in arms and said, why don't you put her in, too? And we'll see them together, sisters. And so we ended up both doing the commercial and it, and it was kind of off from there. I acted pretty steadily all the way through high school until I went to college and mm. I did really enjoy it. You know, I always get a kick out of 
child actors who say that they were forced to or they hated it because I'm not sure how that would work because you have to be really cooperative Mm -hmm. and you have to be very professional and very adult. And I learned a lot of really great things from it. Um, you know, work ethic because they're paying you so much money. They expect you, even if you're six years old, you, you need to work like an adult, you know, everyone hit your mark on time, know your lines, do your thing. So it teaches you to be very serious, but then it also teaches you, I always felt the value of a job well done. You know, when someone outside the family gives you a paycheck. You're like, wow. Do you remember getting that first paycheck? Not the first one, again, because I was six months, but I do remember them coming and it just being... What is um, the first memory you have? I mean, obviously not the six months, but what do you... I think it was probably Little House on the Prairie because that was a big deal in terms Mm -hmm. of being a series regular and getting a regular paycheck. Yeah. And um, I was sort of overwhelmed by the amount, you know, it was kind of... But I understood... Did you actually hold a physical paper check that came in? Yes, yes. It came in the mail. Um, but I think I also, by that point, really understood how um, rare and infrequent it was to work as an actor, even though I was considered very successful and booked more jobs than anybody else I knew at the time, for sure. There were still long periods of time when you didn't work. And that also made a big impression on me that I wanted to grow up and have a job that was more stable. I mean, ironically, you know, that I ended up in news. But but even that, you know, is a little bit like the studio acting system where you you work for somebody for a salary and for benefits and for insurance and, you know, whatever. And your show rates are doesn't. But you're still sort of under contract and it's and it's a steady job. Right. So I don't know, made a couple different impressions on me, I guess. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the Little House stuff, too. I, I like that show a lot. I, I remember it you know pretty well. And one of the things I was always blown away, especially as I got older, was Michael Landon's, uh, you know, sort of overall presence and and architecture of the show, because normally actors in the 70s would go in and sort of enjoy the infrastructure around them. There were directors and writers and producers and set designers and someone doing the wardrobe. He was one of the first actors to come in and be the infrastructure. He did everything on the show. And I was wondering if you think that it seems like he was one of the first to really do that, too. I mean, could someone like. You know, nowadays you see actors become big stars and say, oh, now I want to direct some and I'm going to produce this and that. Could that have happened without Michael Landon having paved the way in some I I know at the time it was incredibly rare and I know it made a huge impression on me for a couple of reasons. And I was actually thinking about this yesterday, strangely enough. Um, It made a big impression on me because one of the reasons why I left acting when I was in high school and is, you know, that I felt like. I was feeling awkward doing it. And what I didn't like when I think back, the exact phrase that was in my mind was, I don't like saying someone else's words. And it was that the dialogue wouldn't always feel authentic to me. And at the time I thought, oh, you're a bad actor, which was probably true. But what it really was, was I wanted to be the creator. I wanted to be the one that was creating the story. And now as I've transitioned again into scripted and unscripted, and I've, I have a production company, I have five shows, um, that have been our different stages of development and are, you know, partnered and one sold. Um, I realized that this is kind of the fulfillment of that dream. And it is really in his footsteps where mm-hmm. he was 
came up with the original idea. Yeah, he ripped off Bonanza, but still, I mean, it was his idea to keep that going. He found the book, Little House in the Prairie, put it together as something he already had a built-in audience for, could bring his audience from his other show. And then he understood how to create his own production company, be the writer, executive producer, director, and the star. He did everything. He kept most of the money. He was incredibly cheap. Um, but everybody appreciated it because you had a steady job. And, you know, it's it now that I look at it, Jason Bateman was my brother on that show. And look what he's doing. I mean, look at Ozark. Was that Jason a masterpiece. But is that yes. his baby? I didn't know it's that. It's his baby. It's his brainchild. I mean, mm-hmm. he is an artist, a showrunner, an actor, a director. He has the vision. And I think as I watch all the intricacies of the shows that he's done now, I think back and think, Wow, you know, I think this really had a big impression on us watching mm-hmm. this person. Not not the power so much as he had the creative control. And the diligence. I mean, yeah. he was looking at the set, yeah, the fine really details. He was involved at every level of the show and, yeah. and a perfectionist. And loved it. Loved he, he did it. all the casting, I'm assuming, everything. as well. Everything. Yeah. He did everything. I mean, he did everything. He It was really his baby. And people looked at it at the time as a way to cut costs and i'm sure part of it was he was a very shrewd business person i mean, yeah, I mean he's that's doing where all this, he got the capital to do it and there wasn't really the model of doing this out there no. when he was was anyone else doing that level of i don't think sort of so but i can't everything? say that for sure i mean i'm sure there mm-hmm. are listeners out there who are going to say this person and that person but you have to cut me a break i was 8 years old <laughs> um but i knew enough people were pointing out to me that at the time how unique it was and that's really the thread that inspired me through the rest of my career you know as i then went over to news and what i loved about it was it was storytelling but in an immediate sense so with mm-hmm. entertainment one thing that was so frustrating was you have an idea you put it on paper it may never get made you're an actor you do a thousand rehearsals you finally record it it may never get out or not if it does it's so much longer like the time horizon was really you know frustrating mm-hmm. in news you do something boom it's that day and then it's yeah. over and the next day is a fresh slate so i loved going to the small town getting the story of the person doing the really unusual thing um and then eventually in business news like going i went all over the world on the oil beat you know chasing opec chasing the ministers i went to saudi arabia bahrain central and south america um all kinds of really exciting things i think then news started to get a little bit old for me. And that's when I went and wrote my first book. Um, I think when that came out is when you and I originally yeah, sort the, of met your, up and became memoir, friends. Yeah. yeah. Which was 2012 that came out. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and that was a big turning point for me because I hadn't written anything of length and substance. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done stories and even hour long documentaries for, you know, CNBC or wherever I was working, but to really come up with 300 pages, you know, is, yeah. is, and I was surprised. Um, I know you talk a lot about process on this show and I always think that's interesting. Um, for me, I went to a book agent and I said, Mel Berger, um, with William Morris Endeavor. And he was very encouraging. I said, look, you know, I have this story, but I haven't written anything, but I think there's something there. And he said, do me a favor, go home and write one scene. Mm-hmm. Not the beginning. It's too overwhelming if you sit down and you say, can I write the whole thing? What's the outline? Was Just write your most vivid memory. Mm-hmm. And within an hour, I had sent him what is the prologue, the very first scene in that book. Mm-hmm. And that verbatim is what I sent to Mel as my sample. And he read that and he went, 
I can definitely sell but a book. And I said, should I get a ghostwriter? And he was like, hell no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Well, let me get more into the process on the memoir yeah. in a bit. Because I want to talk about before all that happened, you took a break from acting and went to Harvard. So what was the goal there when you went back to get as far away from Hollywood as possible I mean literally you were done with acting at that time well I wanted to see if I was done with acting I had gone to Stanford summer school and I still got the call come down for an audition you know I still felt the gravitational pull back to LA and at the time I felt like this is something I've done my entire life you know it it wasn't my choice, but at the when same time... When you were time, doing all the acting, what was your academic experience? Were you kind of homeschooled or no, like no. getting tutors oh, no. because you'd be on set for I a while? I had that first Tiger Mom. So it was, you may be acting, but you still need to have straight A's all the time. There's no excuse. So you're going into a schoolhouse, yes. normal classrooms. Yes. You yes. weren't like pulled out with tutors or something. No, I mean, when you're so when you're working on a regular show, you can't show up at school because obviously you're on a set. So you do three hours of school time at the set with a tutor but that's kind of a joke it's like you're basically well i mean it's a little like covid you're basically you know doing the assignments remotely mm-hmm. um and then turning them back into your teacher and you're not getting any instruction because the tutor that's there isn't really attuned to what's going on in your classroom so you kind of read the section in the math book and then you do the math homework so it wasn't very effective but for that me. kept you on pace with your class so when yes. you stop shooting you go back into the same classroom same yes. kids and moved I, along yes yes i would but almost no one else did it was very unusual at the time most of the kids would either get emancipated and stop going to school get their ged which i also did i also got my ged so that i i eventually realized that sitting for three hours in the classroom on set was a total waste of time because you slowed down production but you also like why do i have to in the middle of my day of acting i'm going to read you know multi-variable equation explanation you know like that's not your brain doesn't really work your high school is a ged i did go to high school um full-time i didn't work as much in high school so i spent more time there um but when i did work in high school i had a ged so i didn't go to school on the set i just got the assignments Mm -hmm. and then completed them when i wasn't working and went back and kept my grades together so, so it was it was a little high what stress. What was your major at Harvard? Economics. Okay. Which was not my talent. Um, it, it's funny because I've, I've also heard a lot of, I've found it interesting in your audience when, when people come to the fact that they're going to be a writer. And when I look back at my life, I got the literature award in high school and almost spit on it because I was like, this is, I wanted the math award because math's really hard and English is really easy. And what I didn't realize was that English was easy for me, you know, and math was hard for me, mm-hmm. but I thought this was sort of the universal experience. And I think it always sort of came naturally to me, but I went in the other direction because I wanted the challenge. So I remember in economics at Harvard, I was I was kind of struggling. I was taking calculus at the same time. And, you know, for the people that are in finance on Wall Street, that was they thought that was easy. And I was really struggling. And my resident advisor said to me, I think maybe you should rethink your major. Like, this is not your talent. And I was like, you're against women, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, some stupid thing. But he was 100 percent right. Like, I was yeah. fascinated by economics and I like political economy, but I don't actually have a talent for it. What so you won the literature award for yeah. for a piece of fiction or no? It was like for overall throughout high school. You know who was the exemplary student in writing and literature, and you know I had taken AP Lit and AP English and 
gotten fives on all of them. And, you know, mm-hmm. I got into Harvard, Princeton, Yale and Stanford. So I ended up with the English award. But wow. I kind of I really wanted like the math award. And that was kind of a joke because I, I didn't even take AP calculus because I to this day, I'm still stuck at calculus. And you picked Harvard over Stanford because you wanted to just distance, go far. Just yeah. distance. You know, I was um, at this point, you're you and your mother have a pretty fractured relationship or or as you and Hollywood had a fractured relationship? No, it was Hollywood. It was Hollywood. Definitely. It wasn't, it wasn't about my family. It was about, um, can I live without this thing that has dominated, has defined me? Mm -hmm. It really had defined me. So when you showed up freshman year, was everyone like, there's the person from little house on the prairie? Cause they're all your contemporaries. Well, you know, what's interesting about that. So Harvard, it's kind of, Everybody has something that's their thing. So you kind of walk around freshman year. What's your thing? Like someone's the amazing flute player. and Sort of. Yeah. yeah. It's that bad. It's that annoying. Um, everybody, ha- almost everybody has something that is their really special thing. Yeah. So I had my special thing and people knew what it was, but it, it was kind of cool. But they all had, you know, somebody else gone to the Olympics and something, yeah. you know, I mean, you have everybody's. It's, I remember back in the, those days, someone was saying you have to be exceptional at one thing and that has to be on your application. And, you know, yeah. whatever that is, you need to be, you know, can't just be really good at no, everything. No, no, you have no, to be no. Yeah. Insane at one thing. Insane at one thing. But then you have to have the rest. It's funny because this is kind of a sidebar. I'll do it quick. But I'm an alumni that does Harvard admissions now. So now I know how it actually works. And you need to be perfect. So academically perfect. SAT is perfect, like all that kind of stuff. And then in addition to that, have a special thing. Mm -hmm. So just having a special thing isn't enough. Like I didn't get in because I was a professional actor. I had to have, you know, a 4.0. I think I was number two in my class. I still, Audrey Herrera was number one, wherever you are, Audrey. <laughs> but, What's you know, Audrey doing you know, now? You know? She's a doctor. I don't know. Yeah. She's probably, you know, saved five trillion mm. people at this point. She was lovely, very nice. But, um, and she went to Harvard too. But, you know, you had to be, so you had to have all that stuff and then also be number one. And yeah. it's still like that, unfortunately. Yeah. So I don't know how people get into I don't places. either. I have a, no idea. Amazing. Yeah. So on to CNBC. What year did you mm. start there? So CNBC, I started in, I think it was 2002. I had done local news on Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey. We had moved out to California. My husband raised in private equity. Um, we had gone out to watch the dot-com bubble burst. Mm-hmm. We arrived just in time for the whole thing to blow up in our face. We bought a beautiful house in the marina. Promptly, everything goes south. Everyone's going under. Um, and I said, well, I, my dream was always to work at CNBC. And he said, fine, if you get hired there, we'll sell everything and move back. I got hired within like a month. And I think he really regretted saying that. Right. <laughs> we moved right back to New York. He was like, I'm not sure I meant that. I'm like, too late. Um, so we came back to New York. I worked at CNBC. I loved it. That was back in the days when GE owned it, not this yes. pre-Comcast yes. ownership. Yes. And Maria Bartiromo was the first person. So when I was a news intern, I was um, an NBC intern and I would always pitch at the Today Show business stories and everybody would yawn and mm-hmm. just they were tortured. And somebody said to me, if you're really interested in those stories, there's this new place, CNBC, where basically everyone's going to die. It's like a career killer. But if you like that, you could go work there and be happy. And I was meanwhile, I turn on this CNBC thing and there is Maria Bartiromo. And she was brilliant, tough and smoking hot. And I was like, just to see that together, like she was on the floor of the New York Stock I remember Exchange. Her nickname was the Money the Honey. The Money Honey. Yeah. And, and people were shoving her as they went by and like giving her that hard time like she's on a football field. Like mm-hmm. she just stood her ground. And she, and she also really 
reveled in how gorgeous she was. She didn't give that up either. So there was just something so inspirational about her in particular um, that I was like, yes, that's the vibe I'm going for. That's what I want. I don't want to give up my brain. Megan says, you know, you kind of like you want to get your pretty card checked. It's not like it's not like your main thing, but you still Mm -hmm. want that validation. Mm -hmm. So she's got kind of all of it going. And I just that's that's where I was like, boom, that's who I want to be. And so I got hired there. I went. She was as fabulous as I thought she would be. And I loved CNBC. um, And I was there for about 10 years. But I realized I can only do one career for nine or 10 years. And then I have to completely scrap it. And it's it's kind it's not a great quality because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work that goes. Whoever's with me, whatever agent is on board at that moment is like, mm-hmm. are you Got getting a good me? thing going? Yeah, here. What are you, are you doing? So true or false? Yeah. The there's a character on 30 Rock played by Elizabeth Banks that was based on you. True or false? So it depends who you ask, because at the time. So this was when I started being like, I want to go back into entertainment. So the showrunner on that show on 30 Rock was Harvard my year and had we had friends in common because a lot of people from Harvard are showrunners out in L.A. There's this thing called the Lampoon, which is kind of a um organic feed into Hollywood. Um, and it's it's like ostensibly like a newspaper, but it's basically a comedy factory. So he had sort of graduated from there. And we had friends that were running Seinfeld who now run Barry and Veep and I know a lot of shows that are on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, so we were out with some of them and I said, hey, you know, you really need um, you should get like some smart girl for Alec Baldwin, you know, like I like the nerdy type. And so I pitched mm-hmm. the whole character and then lo and behold, the you know, appeared. Elizabeth. Yeah. And I had sent them like tons of follow up notes and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm in it, I know so you that you have an email correspondence I back do. and forth. Like I do. But incoming as well as outgoing. Right. But now that I'm I'm embarrassed about that now, because Now that I actually write stuff, like the idea is the very, very least of it. Like everyone has a million ideas. It's can you shape it into something? Do you have a vehicle to put it on? Can you execute on it? Like ideas are everywhere and worthless. They're totally worthless. They're but it sounds like he picked that idea and then executed on it. Seems seems like it. I mean, enough that I mean, I saw she came out. This is going back some years, but she came out and said, no, it's not that. But it sounds like. There was enough well, going I, for that to be true that it was showed up in like more, the Daily Mail and things like that. Yes, it was. It's more embarrassing, I think, for me that a couple other people had been on the show. I think Katie Couric, like they had done appearances mm-hmm. and I was like really lobbying for an appearance on the show as myself. And I wanted a regular part. So mm-hmm. that's what's really embarrassing. It's like I was so thirsty to be on the show and I'm hawking them. And so then they, they're like, yeah, it's a good idea, but we don't want her. Like we need an actual right, actress or we need somebody prettier or funnier or, or more recognizable. So it's more embarrassing to me than anyone else that it was like here's this idea and they're like nah we don't it's a great idea but we don't want her well yeah. I, I, so i'm gonna go with true <laughs> okay the the uh person is based on i your, like that yes and um i know you've done you've had your own show you've been on ensemble shows over the years you've done all yeah. sorts of stuff and you were kind enough to have me on your show money yes. money with melissa francis back when my um my first novel came out which is about novel. wall street yeah. yeah that was a great one I, lo- I still love that novel that was a great one so speaking of that novel and that period, that's when your memoir came out, 2012. What what made you want to tell that story at that time? It was just sort of burning. In, you know, it was, it was I guess it was two things. Um, 
I knew I really wanted to write. By the way, I'm way ahead of you. But on the I didn't cocktail. know what. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to tell a coherent story, <laughs> but I didn't know what I wanted Plus to write. Plus, you can't get the rosemary sprig <laughs> in your teeth. Yes. Um, and I also, you know, I had just had my first son, and he said to me, "So is Gigi, which was his child name for Ray's mother. Is she your mom too?" And he was, I think, three. And I knew that he was trying to piece together, where's your mom? Like, I've seen these other people. None. No. Um, At that point, let's see, that was 2006. And I think the last time I talked to her was maybe 2002. So it hadn't been that long. But I knew I was going to, I mean, still it has been since 2002, I think. Um, But I knew I was going to have to sort of explain and Ray and I have always had this thing that um, I will never lie to my kids about anything. Um, I don't, I think it's really important to tell them the truth. I will say to them, mommy and daddy were just wrestling. Right. No, <laughs> Right. I will. I, they're so funny. Cause they'll ask me a question. I'll be like, are you sure you want to know? Cause I'm going to tell you. So they, they do know that they're going to, they're going to get the story, but if it's over their heads, you know, I'll say I could tell you, but I don't think, you're ready for, I don't think you're mature enough for yeah. that right now, but yeah. I'm not going to tell them a lie. So I knew I needed to, no, I like that policy. That's yeah. We're, we're the so they know if I say something, it's real, you know, mm-hmm. they can trust that what I'm telling them is the truth. And I'm not going to expose them to something they're not ready for, but I'm not going to make up some stupid story to that is age appropriate. And then later go back and say, Oh, that was, I only told you that cause you were young. Cause yeah. then kids are like, wait, but it what is else? fair to say we're not, you're not ready for that. We'll talk yeah, about yeah, that. One yeah. Yeah. You're later. not ready for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in this case, I, I knew I need to get right with the story. I need to get organized in my head and understand so this is what happened. 2006 you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you actually start so. putting pen to paper? No, on no, the no, book? no. He was three. He was born in 2006. So Sorry. 09 you so it was, it was like 09 that yeah. we were talking about this. Yes. It was like 09. 09. Yeah. Like right in there. Um, and so that's when I just sort of got the idea. Somebody else, Bill Griffith at CNBC had just written a really cool book about genealogy and his family. And I asked him, what, what was that process like? Like how was it hard from where, what we do? Like, what's the jump? Like, it's like easier than you would think, you know, it was really rewarding. He really encouraged me. So I went and saw that agent and then I wrote the book in three months wow. and it wow. just sort of poured out while you're working. So just at yeah. night and mornings, spare time in the so office. The weird thing, my, my process was, I go to bed kind of thinking about what's the next thing I'm going to write. My eyes open at two o'clock in the morning exactly without an alarm. I would get up and write for two hours what was already there. It was like a scene was there. And I basically sort of vomit it down onto the keyboard. You know, like I didn't worry about does this make sense? Where does it come in? How am I going to I'm not reading what I'm writing? I'm just putting down everything that had processed in my mind between, you know, 10 and two. And that would usually take an hour or two. And then I would go back to sleep until six. And then when I was in the makeup Meanwhile, chair in the Ray morning. like, would you stop no, this stupid book? Well, <laughs> no, I, need, I, I didn't do it in the sleep. bedroom. I would get, <laughs> come on, I'm not inconsiderate. I'd grab my laptop. I'd be out in the living room. Um, no, most of the time he didn't know. And, and that was another thing, as you know, having kids and stuff. I know you like to leave the house to go and write. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it when everybody's asleep because that's when I can really 
focus and concentrate, but there's also no pressure because I haven't gotten dressed up and gone somewhere. Yeah. It's like I just wake up and kind of sit there and write. And then in the morning when I was in the makeup chair, I would go back through and read what I had wrote and kind of see, does it make sense? Where does it fit? That sort of thing. And that became my process. So for three months, the woman that did my makeup and hair, they were annoyed because I didn't talk while I was sitting there. They're like, you're so boring now. Um, but I would just sort of refine what I did and turn it in. And doing two shows a day, it's how I did my second book, too. Um, I still managed to do these in very short periods of time because that's just sort of my process. And yeah. I just get it down on paper. And then um, so in I, three months on the memoir in three months, you had a first draft. Yes. You know, it was sort of edited as you went. And then yes. what happened? Your agent read it or... Um, no, then, so I had, I sold it based on that first snippet, um, to Harvey Weinstein of all people. And, um, I, yeah. Right? Wait, the movie rights or the no, publishing the rights? No, his publishing, it was, oh. it was Weinstein and then it became something else later. Um, so, so I. Did he, does he publish books that he generally, back in the day, did he publish books that he generally thought were going to be. Sort of, but he basically had, he had a publishing company. Georgina Levitt was the CEO. She was wonderful, phenomenal person. She had a terrific editor that I was working with. Um, I only met him once. It was really, I mean, I don't, I, I, it really didn't have, in my mind, it didn't have that much to do with him. Like she said Mm -hmm. he was her boss and yes, my agent led me to believe that it, that would make it, you know, be more likely to make it into something that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was more like they liked it right away based on just the introduction and were willing to pay and advance it because I wasn't going to write the whole thing without selling right. it first because who has that kind of time of yeah. yeah so um that was just kind of how that worked so I I just started writing it and I had a really good editor that maintained the structure mm-hmm. and sort of said okay you've explained this and this we haven't heard from this person what was this person doing at this time and she would sort of plant that seed it was almost like having a therapist and then yeah. you'd go back and write the rest of it with the second one I did a true formal outline myself first and then filled in the blanks. But that one is more, isn't in my opinion, nearly as good. And it isn't, it's more of a, it's more all over the place. Like the first one is a story mm-hmm. and she really, at the time I didn't understand as much as I do now about a formal story arc and what you need, where and where you need reveals and where you need Easter eggs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And she sort of guided me through that without my understanding of it. Well, let's talk about that a bit. Cause yeah. I know, you, you're now doing a lot of writing and developing mm-hmm. for TV shows and you've been pitching yeah. series and things like that. And prior to that, over the last few years, like you really put in the work to learn how to do this. Like you, yeah. you took a very professional approach. So you've taken some classes. What, what yeah. are some of the things that you learned out of those classes to... So I had, when I had hit like the seven year mark at Fox, I knew like this is I don't last very long. I know this is I'm going to need a career change soon. And I really wanted to write comedy. And it seemed like a very crazy thing to do um, because it's I don't know a lot of people have made that transition, but it was just like I couldn't help it. I remember being with you guys, I think on vacation. And I said to Megan, like, I just can't live without doing this thing. I think I can't. I think I can't go on without, you know, script writing. Like, I really want to do this. And so I tried my hand to just write a script, like a half hour comedy. And we have a lot of friends that are in the business. So they sort of looked at it and helped me. I entered a comedy festival. I won the script one. And so I was like, okay, maybe I could do this. I started hooking up with other writers and showrunners and trying to figure stuff out. Somebody I was partnering with on a project said, it's like you've never done a beat sheet for a half hour comedy. And I was like, 
Of course I have. What the hell is she talking about? So I Google this and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a whole process there's I'm supposed to be following. <laughs> yeah. And so I realized that I didn't what, have. What is a beach? I don't even know. So what that is. it's basically, I, I mean, the really, the, the best way to explain it, I studied under John York, who literally wrote the book on structure and. For um, a TV show, like a half hour show or re- any. Almost anything. I even mean, a he's, novel. Even a commercial, even a political campaign. And it's basically like. The way the brain gets engaged is by learning new information and you have your view of the world. Something comes along and turns your view of the world upside down, the antithesis of your thesis at the beginning. Then you have to synthesize it together. How do these things coexist in the world? And in the end, you come to a new resolution. There's a brave new world. That journey is the essence of every good movie, every good ad campaign, every good commercial, every good book, everything you've ever enjoyed is the essence of that journey someone's world was turned Mm -hmm. upside down they learned some enormous lesson took a huge journey where they synthesized what they used to know with how the world currently is and they landed in a brave new world and aren't there certain like time break like in a two-hour movie at minute 20 or a hundred page script on page 25 there should be a certain thing so the beat sheet breaks it down for you and you can find them online they're in every writer's book um you know People can make fun of them at times, but it's a disciplined way to write where Mm -hmm. you go through and you know at the end of Act One, the world has to be turned upside down. You also need to foreshadow at the very beginning the event that's going to occur at the end. Um, Some good ones are like... Uh, In the movie Gucci, I'm sure nobody noticed the very beginning she's signing checks. Lady Gaga is signing checks for her dad. And he's saying, oh, your signature is almost as good as mine. Well, in the very end, she has forged, you know, the the father Gucci's name on some certificates, which then turns it ends. It foreshadows like the entire thing falling apart at the end. But you don't realize it until the second or third time you watch the movie because it's so subtle. But there's something that happens in that very beginning that tells you about the end. Um, At the midpoint, you know, the person's life really changes. It really turns upside down. There's some catastrophic event. And even working with, you know, I've been working with Michael Wolf, who's written so many amazing books. Um, He's just he's a phenomenal writer. And he just recently wrote um, one of his books got adapted into a docu uh, well into a scripted series and he's writing the scripts and he I'm telling him well you've got to hit these certain notes you know and he mm-hmm. said I know how to write it and I said well they're going to turn to page 30 and on page 30 of 60 it has to say you know the main action has yeah. to happen God, as a viewer yeah I feel like to hear this I feel a little duped you know it's like you're watching the no. show it's like oh it's free feeling and it's like oh you mean they've been like gearing this thing exactly it makes me feel like how Facebook is like they know how to draw you in it's okay like, they've so been, they've been drawing me in I'll make you feel better about that it's it's the the way your brain processes information, it's based on psychology. That's where the formula comes from. It what It's what makes a story satisfying. It also keeps the writer honest. So what's more irritating than when you get to the end of a show and the person who did it, you never even saw them anyway? Yeah, like annoying. you hate that when they cheat yeah. and they're like, they didn't give you that piece of information or they solve things really quickly at the end. They have the great buildup, but then the end is like this flim flam quick. All of those things, they haven't followed the formula. Mm-hmm. So it's actually more distressing it's cheaper it's when you go with there's a reason the formula exists because emotionally and intellectually as humans this is how we process new information and 
people have found different ways. And then the art of the journey, how you get there, that's where the artistry is. That's where the good writers are when you don't notice that you've hit these milestones. I mean, that's the thing is if you watch it and you don't notice the foreshadowing, you don't notice then that's good you know, in the fourth act when they get to... You know, it's the crucifixion and resurrection. It's, I mean, the fascinating. So this course I took in storytelling by John York that was so amazing. He kind of went through, he spent the whole first part of it proving to you why this is important and why it isn't a trick and why it isn't a formula. And he went all the way back to the Bible, you know, and the Bible, you can, it is, it follows the beat structure. It follows the five arc storyline precisely. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything happens from the the halfway point, you know, when he says they're riding high, you know, the prophets are like, woohoo, you know, we're turning wine into water. This is awesome. This guy is the Messiah. And then boom, he says to them, but I'm going to leave you. And they're like, why are you going to do that? Like, this is going great. Like the, the ax falls in the middle. Then the ax really falls, you know, in the fourth act. And then you have the resurrection. It's the classic arc. Obviously, whoever was writing the Bible did not know about modern filmmaking at the time, but it literally follows it perfectly. So our Mm. brains, our psychology has been working like this for a long time in a story that's compelling. That's why the Bible has stuck around for so long. Among other reasons, of course, I don't want to offend anyone, but it was written perfectly. It reminds me, there's a movie scene. I can't, I think it's the movie Barcelona, but these two guys are talking about this topic. And the one guy's like, I don't know. It's all just so formulaic. And the other guy's like, of course it's formulaic. It's a formula. Right, right, (laughs) right. Yeah. But it became that way for a reason. It works for a reason. Yeah. So it's, it's to me, it's the same as the writer who makes the outline. I mean, you outline, right? I mean, I know other people just. Some don't. I'm I'm a relentless. I'll, I'll have second and third drafts of my outline. Yeah, I do that now. I didn't do that with my first book because it was a real story that happened. So I could feel the natural inflection points. But with most stories, when you're creating them out of thin air, you don't feel the natural turns and inflection points. So I found it incredibly helpful. And this does this go for scripted and unscripted? So the challenge that I had when I was working with John York, I created this show called The Cult, which is about a news organization. Um, But anyway, um, so it's a dramedy, much like Succession. And the challenge is, so you create the arc where it's like the first event turns things upside down a bit. They try to denial kind of how am I going to react in this new reality? The midpoint, everything really goes upside down. They have to really commit, really make a choice. Then there's the death then there's the resurrection. So you do that arc for the pilot. Then you do that arc over the first season. So the end point of your pilot has to be the instigating event for the season. See what I'm saying? So like Mm -hmm. the midpoint of the season becomes what was the midpoint of the first episode. Then if you get a second season, you have to continue on as if your season finale was the midpoint and go on from there. So you're constantly like in a mathematical sense, you're extrapolating mm-hmm. the events out as far as you can until it gets ridiculous. What's and that's show? when a show it, dies. Succession, you've yes. mentioned that. They're, they're doing that Perfection. pretty well yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, they really have that. These, they, se- these season finales yeah. leave you like, oh my God, right. when are they releasing the next season? So it has to be both a resolution and this new upside down point of departure. Yeah. And it can't be ridiculous. Like that's the other thing is that you have to keep turning 
the world's upside down in a way that's convincing. Like a lot of shows get annoying. I know people, you and I loved the Americans. People got annoyed at the Americans because they were like, oh, they keep getting out of the impossible situation. Well, of course, but when they finally get caught, you know, they're going to, then it's going to be over. So one of the new ways that people are dealing with it is, um, so I loved that show Killing Eve. It got ridiculous by the end, but. Season one of that was really good. Well, it was really good. And what John York was using that as an example and saying that what would have been really good is if they had committed to killing off one of the characters at the end of each season and rebuilding the show around a new villain Mm -hmm. or a new hero each season and keeping one or just keeping Villanelle and making the CIA person different or MI5, whatever it was. So in my show, I kill off the main character who is is ostensibly me um, pretty quick in the second season as like a challenge to keeping it Poor fresh. Elizabeth and you see Banks. a lot of people. She's all gone right? now in the second season. <laughs> right? you, see a, you, you see a lot of shows doing that now where they commit to killing off their main characters. And I said, well, doesn't that make Game actors. Game of Thrones is great at that too. The yeah. Sean Bean character goes and you're like, what? Well, you know, you're not used to shows you, killing off you their get stars really upset. like that. Yeah, yeah, you get really upset. But the truth is that it keeps the show fresh. And also yeah. I've been told that actors are more likely to sign on because they don't want to be stuck for in a show forever and ever. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, I want to be like six years is a years. good lifespan for a show. They shouldn't go beyond I, six. I would go on for, I, I, I'm all with um, Grey's Anatomy. Like I would love to be getting that paycheck for that long. So I don't know. I mean, people complain about being on for well, a long maybe time. as an like, actor, but as a viewer, yeah. I'm like, six yeah. is good. Maybe yeah. five. So how can the listeners find this John York? Can they take an online class oh, yeah, or something Oh yeah, you just like Google that? him. Yeah, he does a lot of online courses. Um, he does a lot of Zoom. So I got lucky. He he was doing, he did do a course that was open only to professionals and you had to go to London. Mm-hmm. But because of COVID, they did it for the first time on Zoom. And also, if you look at his book, Into the Woods, is really literally the textbook on storytelling in almost all Would you be on a Zoom schools. with like 100 people? Or can no, you be like more 20. back and forth so no, you no, can it participate? Was, oh, it was very, no, it, he insisted. Like we broke up into groups. You had to write. You had okay. to respond. Um, no, no, it's it's very, um, it's very interactive. How much does it cost? And I don't remember. Um, it's not crazy, though. It's like. Well, I mean, it depends what you're I think it was a couple thousand dollars. I'm not sure. Um, but it was more than I mean, I learned people would say to me, your your characters walk around telling hilarious jokes, but they're basically standing around making fun of each other and you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about structure at all. And then once he really excited me about the puzzle of structure, I think it has helped me so much because I learned it in such a formal sense that now of the five projects that I have out right now, my production company is called Sailfish Productions. Sailfish? And we have a Sailfish, yes. And we have, um, I have a pure reality show that's just like basically um, below deck, but it's set in this dog park. It's pretty crazy. Um, And then I have a docu-series that I'm doing with Michael Wolf, which is tentatively called Mighty Fall. And it's basically, um, you know, all of the really big stories of our time of people that either he or I have interviewed and gotten to know. Yeah. And people, what what we thought was interesting about that was it's people we knew both before and after. We -hmm. knew them when the world thought they were fantastic. And it's funny to us we're both very sarcastic sort of jaded people and we were having lunch and saying we always knew all of these people were this person and before it was okay and then it wasn't okay and either it was never okay or it was always okay but the people didn't change Mm -hmm. just what the public knew about them and what the public thought was acceptable about them changed and we thought that was kind of an interesting point of departure on these shows was kind of well let's We'll let them speak. And we have a lot of proprietary. Well, it's interesting because you can show what was in plain sight oh, right. five years ago right. when they were beloved. Yeah. And 
play that for someone like yeah. well, why why was it all fine then? And, and we don't want to we just lay it out there you mm-hmm. know it's like I'm a big fan of let the audience decide like here's something they said 10 years ago here's something they said two years ago here's some you know and you kind of it's a deeper dive on these characters and it's also more what were they thinking like I think that's the real idea like one fun one is you know we were in the pitch and I said um you know, like people wonder, what was Jeffrey Epstein thinking when he flew back to New York from Paris? You know, the day he got arrested, he flew back. Why did he come back? And Michael goes, well, I can tell you because I was on the phone with him. He called me, you know, and here's what he said. And so we have sort of a lot of really incredible Can you tell us about the material. pitch meetings? Who's in the room and what, what is said um, by whom? The pitch meetings for shows like this? Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so for the most part, you know, mine have all been. Are you pitching to the studios, like or distribution? Like, do you everybody to Amazon? It's and really HBO? all. I mean, it's kind of whoever your agent can get wants to take a meeting with you. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of done it all at this point, and you sort of riff on. I guess one thing that's funny about it is, so I do have five projects. I have an hour long dramedy, which is the cult thing I was talking about. Um, half hour scripted comedy. I'm forgetting one. But in any case, you you kind of have them all and you go in a general meeting and I pitch the one that I think fits best with like if I'm talking to stars or I'm talking to, you know, whoever it is, um, what I think is going to appeal to them. And then half the time I'm wrong and they like a different project. So Wait, my, will you show all five or three I, or no, are you looking at them and their eyes glaze over and you're like on to the next pitch? Well, it, I mean, they're actually much more straightforward than I, I'd be like, um, like I went into this one reality pitch recently and I was like, I have this great show. It's like Shark Tank meets Below Deck, but it's set in this dog bar spa. Which is like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's this investment that actually, the the press release went out that my husband invested in the company, so I can actually talk about it. But, you know, he he looked at this road show, and he said, this is a great investment. And I said, that's a great show. So it's a real-life dog bar real where people dog bring bar. their dogs to run around, yes. and then they have a drink but while their dogs... mainly they're there to hit on other people. To meet a, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's really funny. It's like 65% women, like 19 to 25, are the members, but... Like, if you read the fine print, you don't have to have a dog to buy a day pass. And so, obviously, guys are figuring this out. And That's they're amazing. showing up at the bar without a dog. It's like a Christopher yeah, Guest spinoff. Yes. It's it's ridiculous. And it's hugely profitable. It's also super luxe. Like, they have the the greens drain, like, as soon as the dog pees. And, like, mm-hmm. fresh water comes up. So And if your dog poops, they, like, scoop it up before it hits the ground. So, it's, it's ridiculous in every sense. And it's going to be a huge hit. And it's clearly a show. So I went to pitch it to, you know, I don't want to say who, but it was, you know, I flew out to L.A. and was, you know, somebody who has some very, very famous reality shows. And I thought for sure they would love it. And I started the pitch and they said, we just tried to do something with a dog and it was a disaster. I don't ever want to hear dog again. I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> so it's like the quick pivot. And, yeah. you know, my agent had told me a while ago, like, you have to walk in with five ideas because and I'm like, no, I'm really committed to the cult. That's the thing I'm going to do. And he said, well, that's lovely. But when you get in a pitch with somebody, if they for some reason have a bias against what your baby is, you, you have to have something else or else you've blown the meeting and they're never going to meet with you again. So yeah. you're only hurting yourself. So I, I ended up coming. I am an idea factory, as you know. So I ended up coming up with a bunch of different ideas to pitch. And so on this one, I pivoted to this other thing, which now it looks like we are going to do together with that person that I went to pitch the dog thing to. And they were, it turns out the, the reality show person had started in news and really wanted to get back to something much more serious. So he ended up being really interested in this other, other project I'm doing with Michael 
Michael Wolf. So um, can you before we do the lightning round, can yeah. you talk a bit more about what that is or do you want to hold that? Uh, I, for later? Um, I don't want to say I mean, it's 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 really amazing. Um, it's just it's a lot of proprietary stuff um, that we have. And then it's really inside the mind of all of these people that you've heard about. It's like the real story. Who were they before? And then the question to me always is, why wasn't it enough? Like, why didn't they get out while they were ahead? Why did they? There is a moment in each of them. So, so you talk about that formula. Our point of departure, our inciting incident, the thing that happens at the end of Act One is this person is riding high. They're on top of the world. But for some reason, rather than cashing out and living the rest of their lives with more money than any of the rest of us will ever know and more adulation and more fame, they decide to do something else. And mm-hmm. it's in that new venture that they end up doing something illegal, like something big and getting their entire life destroyed. And you you look back at that one decision at the end of Act One, if they hadn't made that decision, they would have left on top. And it's a small thing. You know, right. in the cases of each of them, it's something, you know, I mean, it's Jeffrey Epstein flying back on that plane, you know, and he came back and spoiler alert, he wanted to, Donald Trump was about to, I think they were going to arrest Michael Cohen and he was going to get served. And, and, um, Jeffrey Epstein knew about it from his sources, I don't know, in, in the Southern District or whatever it was. So he decided to come back to New York because he wanted to see it on the post. He wanted to be in New York to enjoy Donald Trump's shame. And as he flew into the airspace in New York, you know, I, I think it was the U.S. attorney that was waiting. Or they, I don't I don't want to say the wrong person, but it was some authority was on the ground and said to the pilots, you must land. We are taking custody of your passenger. And he said, do not land this plane. And the pilot said, we're not allowed to do that. Like, we've been told to land the plane. And and he got arrested. And that was the end of Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. And it I was didn't... all because he came back. And the reason why we know that is because he was trying to convince Michael Wolff to write a book about him that would be flattering. And I'm like, hello, Michael Wolff hasn't written anything flattering about anyone ever. Why would you call him? Mm-hmm. But whatever. He he was in the process of of collaborating on a book and he was on the phone with Michael. So Michael knew what he was thinking. And I think one of the biggest questions that people of mine, what were these people thinking when they did this thing? And we actually know the answer. So that's kind of, it's, it makes our, our show is going to be very unique. How and many like different characters will be on that show? A lot. I mean, we have, we've, we've built, you know, I like money. My nickname at, at Fox was money. So, you know, they it's, we have a lot, we have a lot. Oh, great. So you can lot. do many seasons. Many seasons. Yeah. 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 All right, then. On to, oh, well, when yeah. you, that comes out, please yes. come back when I'm talking about it. Yeah. All right, on to the lightning round, which I know okay. you listen to the show, yes, so you, yes, you know what's yes, happening here. Yes. Favorite book as a kid? Ooh, that's so I thought that's funny because I, I didn't love reading as a kid at all because it was like I was always on the set doing something busy. Um, so I thought about that. I would be lying if I said something because I don't I didn't really enjoy reading as a kid at all. Later, what would you read on the set when you were little, like magazines or nothing? I mean, Jodie Foster was always reading. I was learning my lines for the next scene or I was doing my homework. You know, I mean, I was always reading for school for me, reading until after college was a means to an end. It was I was trying to get a grade and then I didn't have any free time. Like I was then I was trying to make a tape so I could get a news job. I first started reading for pleasure after college and I 
discovered Cillian Jane Austen. I thought she was fantastic. And I was like, I finally had the time to like read it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that you can't, if you rush through it, it's just all gibberish. So, all right. Anyway. What well, book you're reading now, now that you've um, caught the bug? Yes, I know. Um, what am I reading right now? Um, I would say that so the family upstairs and then the family that remains that's a really i'm blanking on the author i looked this up before i came here it's a it's a very hot set of books um lisa jewel the family that remains is the one i'm only six percent in true right here and i wrote that down before i came in so i can't believe i couldn't remember it off the top of my head but it's really good because it's one of those ones that's told that 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 trick that everybody loves right now where the time you go back and forth in time and the mm-hmm. speaker changes yeah so you're trying to synthesize the different voices that you're hearing to guess what's going to happen and it's particularly well crafted so are, i love that are you doing a lot of ebooks and audiobooks yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah no no i don't do audio but i do e i do audio for um i just read um changing your mind like for for stuff like that about psychology and stuff i'll do audiobooks yeah recent tv shows that you would recommend Ooh, um i loved blackbird um Dennis we, Lehane. yeah He's, no that's that was a really good one that i came to late i think everybody else had already watched it by the time that i got onto it um on stars we we're watching dangerous liaisons that i like a lot and then also serpent queen i got to late and i think is really well done and um, well really, crafted i didn't even know about that serpent one. queen is great um succession is my favorite show of all time all time forever I have memorized every season of The Crown. I binged the whole thing the second it came out. Um, yeah, those are. I love Ozark and not, I couldn't get into Ozark. I'm writing down some of your recommendations really here. I just I tried it and it was just dark. I just felt like they weren't people I wanted to hang around with so, very much. But people say that about a lot of great shows. Like so many people couldn't get into Succession because they said none of the characters are likable. And the trick in those shows is that they make you love and care for the characters. And that's the trick is they start with mm. everyone being. So you've got to get over the hump in the beginning and then yeah. you get in the whole thing. Serpent Queen is is more inviting, is easier to get into. I loved um, what was it? The Becoming Elizabeth. That was on Stars too. Yeah. And was, you know, we kind of like we get on one place and we kind of binge everything out of it and then we switch right. over to the next one so you kind of give, give Netflix I'm, I'm a, a couple months to refresh and right, come back right, to refresh yeah. right like hbo there's I, there's been nothing new on there for me for a while even though i love it all right well i'll give ozark yeah give it ozark. yeah give it a try top few writers for tv that are out there now you think are doing good work um yes um i love what jason bayman does i've said that already um i love is he doing some of the writing too Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like he's he's very much into the the whole process. And I love the way that he I remember a period of time when people were saying, oh, yeah, he's hung in there. He made the transition like he's a good helper as like the secondary actor, as if that wasn't like a great thing. You know, I'm like he's a major star in major movies like and and has been like a huge actor his whole entire life. Like it's amazing. And now he's graduated to a place where he does exactly, you know, what he wants to do all the time. Um, So, you know, I love the, I love the stuff that he does. Um, Yeah. Restaurant in Manhattan. This is switching gears a bit. Restaurant in Manhattan that makes the best cocktails. Well, Doug's house um, because I've only come over to your house for cocktails. Elio's, of course, makes a fantastic cocktail, and that is our go-to spot. We love Elio's. Um, I don't know. The Polo Bar always has something Polo nice and solid. delicious. Yeah, yeah that, that's a solid one, definitely, for sure. And we love Omar's. I'm, uh, if you look at my Instagram, yes. I always have yeah. something out of control from that Omar's. That is a saucy spot. Yeah, We've been there definitely. once. We'll have to, have to go back. Team Tom or Team Giselle? 
Oh my God, are you kidding? Is anyone Team Giselle? Give me a break. I mean, Team Tom. First of all, this is the first time my husband has been a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan his whole entire life. So my like the start of my week has always been tainted by how good or bad they play on Sunday. Needless to say, it has been tough being married to a Buccaneers fan. Finally, I mean, I have loved Tom Brady since the beginning of time. I mean, since his college days. So for the first time, we are both rooting for Tom Brady for the right reasons. I would also say that we've met Giselle a number of times, a number of times. And it's always in a different setting that's really distressing. Um, One was my 30th birthday. We were in Mexico and we were on this beach at this resort and it was like my dream for my 30th birthday we're going to go away and we're going to be in this resort and it had just opened and I feel this person behind me posing and posing and Ray looks over my shoulder I turn around there's Giselle in a g-string posing for the Victoria's Secret swimsuit catalog they're shooting the catalog at my 30th birthday women out there can you imagine anything more awful than having all of the victoria's secret catalog at your 30th birthday and well, I mean, they were my 30th right, I could... yes so ray's like texting his friends he's like oh my god you'll never believe it they're all flying down to mexico i'm like my birthday is ruined meanwhile the resort had just opened so it was us and all of the angels at every bar at every at the restaurant, like there was no one at the resort except for us and like Ariana Lima, Giselle Bunchen. Oh anyway, my gosh. she was smoking a cigarette for lunch, of course. Um, she was complaining about how cold the water was. She was basically miserable through the whole entire thing, and she ruined my birthday. So I've never been on Team Giselle. We saw her later. At, we were at this um, resort in Big Sur. She arrived with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. She didn't remember us from the other events. So I've had a beef with Giselle for a long time, and well, I'm majorly team tom brady and ray is the same um unclear yeah he might have a soft um, spot for yeah Giselle, you know, i the, think he the cigarette and the thong i'm there i think he would probably say he's team tom and i think if i'm not there he's probably team giselle oh, but funny. he knows better than to say that in front. all right in the show succession which character should take over the company after logan roy is done how is that even a question it's obviously shiv i mean come on she's like the brains the balls the whole thing she's got it all yeah it's shiv 100 percent without question it's always been shiv and it will always be shiv I, she is she is such a fascinating character. You oh, hate her fabulous. and then you love her and you yeah. feel a little sorry for you and then, and then you can't stand her. It's just that scene on the beach. I think it was see, at the end of season two when they were on the yacht and then they she's she's with her husband and they have this like really honest conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that's like one of the most honest pieces of TV I've ever seen. Like it's heart wrenching. Her treatment just, of that poor sap though oh, is just God. so bad. Yeah. My gosh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. One piece of good advice for the listeners on any topic. Just. Put it down on paper. Don't worry about what can I write the whole thing? What's the beginning? What's the end? The greatest piece of advice I ever got was from that first writing agent, Mel Berger, where he said, you're overthinking it. Just write a memory. Don't even think about will I use this? Will I be in the book? Is it the beginning of the story? Is it the end? Whatever it is, like whatever creative feeling you're having, and it applies to music, like anything you're doing that's at all creative. I mean, I I paint with my daughter. I'm terrible. But I'm just just do it. Just put down what's inside of you without thinking about how it's going to sound or look and know that you can rip it up. You can throw it away. You can, you know, I tell people that want to be in news, 
you need to sit there in front of the mic and just talk and don't think about, am I going to show, what am I going to talk about? Am I going to show this to anyone? No, none of those things. Just sit there and talk about something that's interesting to you that day. It could be your shoes. It could be the food that you had last night. It could be something super intellectual, but whatever it is that you think creatively you want to do, give yourself permission to just do a tiny little bit that no one else will ever see or hear. And it's the only way to get started. You have Mm -hmm. to do it in little bite-sized chunks because if you wait until you're ready to write a whole book, to do a whole script, whatever it is, you will never start because it's too intimidating. It's too much to do. For some people, that's the outline. For some people, it's a sketch. I think for most people, it's the middle of the picture. It's the leaves on the tree. It's the scene that you've always thought about. Wouldn't it be cool if it's something in the middle for the most part? And you say, how do I get started? Start in the middle. Just sing a note. Just do it, whatever it is, and let it out. And then you'll be surprised how much flows from there. It will all come from there. But but let it rip first. I love that. Let it rip. Yeah, let it rip. That's great advice. Melissa, yeah. thanks so much for coming in. It was a pleasure talking to it was you. so much fun. Now I'm going to pound the rest of this drink. <laughs> thanks for having me. Great to see you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.